Hey, Blockheads. So we had a contest going on on our Twitter that was a hashtag retweet for the chance to win an exclusive DMs Block t-shirt. The winner today is going to be announced on air. And so, hey, Neil, to do that, we're going to do it in the D&D way. Neil, you're going to roll some dice. So why don't you pull up your mic and get those dice nice and close and let's hear this winning roll and see who wins this beautiful stop dungeon masters block t-shirt all right here we go neil we have matched the names two numbers can you announce to the listeners right now who is the winner of this exclusive dmv shirt i definitely can and it is none other then Charles Hawkins. Yeah, awesome. Yes. Charles Hawkins, well done. You are the winner. So that's Charles Hawkins at CrimIon99. We have followed you on Twitter. Message us on Twitter. Let us know what size you want. Send us your address, and we will get that awesome T-shirt to you right away. So you can have stomp on your chest and quite literally stomp around. <laughs> that's awesome. Everybody who didn't win, hey, thanks for playing. Thanks for retweeting. We will have other contests in the future, so make sure to follow us on Twitter and keep an eye out for more exclusive contests from at DM's Block. And now, here's the show. Welcome back, Blockheads, to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the other players at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I am Dungeon Master Mitch. And this week we are talking about the price of magic. Come on down, the price of magic. You know, if, only, <laughs> if only Bob Barker could have been our, our, our guest for this show. We have another cool guest, though. Fortunately, we have Rodrigo Lopez from the Actual Play podcast, Critical Hit, coming on to talk with us about magic and the price of magic. So we are really excited to get into that interview and and pick his brain a little bit about that. So before we go to the meet, we have some five-star reviews from iTunes that we have to get to. So Mitch, take us away with the first one. The first one comes from Hero Skulls and is entitled, The Best Podcast in the Multiverse five stars which is awesome he says this is my favorite podcast if the dm's block ever disappeared i think it would probably turn into a wolf and make hashtag magic marks magic cards hostage and then demand that the show get put back on (laughs) all kidding aside i have been listening to this podcast since the beginning and it will always hold a special place in my earbuds (laughs) every monday i listen to the dm's block as i run six miles Listening to the topics that Mitch and Chris present during my runs has become very much a part of my routine. I enjoy the topics and the discussions, and after listening to an episode, I always have several new ideas to make my D&D games more fun for my players. Mitch and Chris will never let you down with each new episode they bring you. All hail Hired Heroes. Thank you so much. 
Hero Skulls. You are fantastic. We appreciate that review. Our next one comes from Garrick Enright, and he writes, Tips for newbies and veterans alike. Five stars. I thought I wrote this message ages ago. We've had a couple of those that people thought yeah. they wrote them ages ago. Uh, DM's block is a fun source of information regardless of your experience at the table. Whether it's dealing with difficult players or crafting a whole world, this is the place for great dungeon mastering tips. Thanks for making this podcast. Sincerely, the Sonic Storytellers from the Indoorsmen. So nice. thank you very, very much, Garrick and Wright. We appreciate you as a listener and appreciate you for your five-star review. Yeah, and thank you, Indoorsman. We appreciate it. Yes, and with that, we're going to get into the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Carve it up! Fist the mouthful! No! <laughs> the flat meat's back on the menu, boys! <laughs> All right, so here we are again for another edition of The Meat, and this week we are talking all about the price of magic, and we are graced with the presence of Rodrigo, the GM of the Critical Hit Actual Play podcast. So, Rodrigo, we want to thank you for being here. Uh, just say hi to the folks, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get started in the interview. Hey guys, how's it going? Rodrigo, thanks again for joining us. We have a couple interview questions for you. Uh, the first that we want to ask you is just beyond uh, role-playing games, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Rodrigo. When I'm not running role-playing <laughs> games, I'm a video producer, writer, podcaster, doing media in general. And uh, tell us a little bit about Critical Hit, how that got started yeah. and, and everything that you feel appropriate for the uh, audience to know about that podcast. So Critical Hit is a real play Dungeons & Dragons podcast. It actually started off as a spinoff of the Major Spoilers podcast yep. because Steven Schleicher, the guy who runs the Major Spoilers podcast, got super curious about 4th edition uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So I ran a short game for him and a couple other people, and that now has turned into this gigantic podcast. We're like in episode 300 something. So <laughs> Yeah, you guys got a lot. Is there anything currently right now with Critical Hit or anything else that you are working on that you want to tell the listeners about? Sure. Obviously, uh, if you go to Majorspoilers.com, you can find all of our podcasts. I'm regularly on Critical Hit and the Major Spoilers podcast. I'm also sometimes on a movie podcast called Zach on Film. I also wrote a book. I self-published it through Amazon. It's called The Tale of Tallest Rabbit. It's an all-ages book. If you've got kids in your life, it's probably a good one. Can you give us a little synopsis of what that book is about? The book is actually a book of stories that is tied together by an overarching story of this uh, young girl who gets herself caught up trying to help a bunch of talking rabbits find a new home. I think there's a lot for adults to like in the book because mm -hmm. I really tried to Very nice. make all the stories sort of structurally interesting and different. So, you know, kids will read it and get a lot of cute animal stories, but I think adults will read it and recognize biblical parables yeah. and folk story mythology kind of stuff so there's a little bit of everything for uh, everybody so rodrigo how did you first get started playing role-playing games i guess there was kind of like weirdly an unofficial start and then an official start when i was 
2012, we got the internet. <laughs> I actually started role playing in like role play chat rooms. It was a mess. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine <laughs> the early days of the internet trying to yeah, do that. Those, yeah. yeah, those things. Those things are kind of rough. You don't know who's going to be in there. You don't know what yeah. exactly is going on. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. no no game master of any kind. Yeah. So everybody's just like, I'm a cyborg. And then somebody else is like, I'm a steampunk. And it's just like, nothing makes sense, right? But but it was, it was fun for what it was. And then when I got to college, I actually started kind of accidentally joined a Vampire the Masquerade LARPing yep. group. And I haven't looked back since. That kind of opened the gates. I went from LARP to kind of world of darkness tabletop and then eventually got into D and a bunch of other stuff very cool all right so rodrigo we have one more question this is a surprise question you had no idea was coming this one comes from another one of our hosts dm main prize and his question to you his surprise question is what is your spirit animal and why my spirit animal is definitely a stapler a stapler <laughs> why a stapler <laughs> you know it's it's kind of this like workhorse kind of office supply and so so not a workhorse but a stapler <laughs> i was expecting you to say something super corny like i hold everything together or whatnot for my group <laughs> Nope, it's it's you know I just I just really see myself as uh, someone useful that you mostly interact with by hitting it. <laughs> oh god! I'd like to call upon House Cat and Barn Owl and Stapler. <laughs> Thank you Perfect. so much, uh, Rodrigo the Stapler. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking on this segment of the meet about. All things magic. We know that a lot of you listening are building your own homebrew worlds. And one thing about a homebrew world is magic can work differently in different worlds. And so we want to talk about different ways that magic can work in worlds that you're building and what kind of options you have with all the different kinds of things with magic. There's just so much to talk about. So let's first jump in. Let's talk about the first thing I think that we need to talk about is the source of where magic comes from. So magic is known as this arcane energy. In 5th edition especially, it goes into describing that this is an energy that fills the entire cosmos. And this is what wizards and sorcerers, they call upon, and they call upon this arcane energy, this cosmic energy, to channel their spells through this energy. We're not talking when it comes from a god like divine magic necessarily. We're still talking that arcane energy that comes from example Bokab. He's probably the most recognizable one that, you know, all arcane energy comes from. The arcane energy, you have a choice when you're creating your world. Like is it an energy that is connected to the gods. Like, is Bokob behind this energy? A lot of Bokob lore is saying that he is, they call it the well of magic, and some of it says that Bokob himself is this well of arcane energy. But you could also have it completely just cut off from the gods. Maybe even an energy that the gods themselves don't even understand this arcane energy. If you look at uh, something like Dark Sun, then mm -hmm. arcane energy is kind of anathema to the gods. It, yeah. Um, you know, the, the game starts after wizards have basically blasted the world and the gods kind of dust their hands and they're like, well, we're going to go live somewhere else, guys. You're on your own. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It could be like a by byproduct of them creating the world that it's like they had all of their crazy powers into it. And it's just like because of all of those powers combining, it's just like, well, what do we do with this magic that we don't mm -hmm. understand anymore? But 
people have the ability to channel it that's bizarre that's really <laughs> weird yeah i mean uh, another thing that you kind of run into in that sense especially when you think about like the, the that power of creation is you know that basically the gods created formulas to create the world and mm-hmm. to generate the world essentially and those formulas, you know, in their hubris, they assume no one would ever be able to figure out. But through study uh, and, and observing the world and everything, humans are able to duplicate them, right? That is, in a lot of ways, what happens in uh, certain games where, especially where there are, like, spirits and stuff, that where the spirits have some sort of task and wizards can learn from the spirits how to duplicate their magic. Yeah, like you duplication of, like, godlike powers, like, there are different worlds that have been made that a magic user can become so powerful that they might even ascend to the power of a god, which that cosmic energy, that arcane energy could be seen by some gods as a danger and they don't like it. They don't want that arcane energy. They don't want wizards to be out there because that poses a danger to their seat of power. And I think it could be interesting too to to think about you know, maybe the gods have commissioned people to go and hunt down the wizards within the world. I think that would be mm-hmm. really interesting to add in, you know, going along that lines of like the gods maybe don't want that as a part of their world. That could be a really interesting thing. Or or even without any real direct divine edict, you know, religious organizations take it upon themselves. If, yeah. you, guys have, if you guys have ever played uh, Dragon Age... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's basically the crux yeah. of of Dragon Age, right? It's the Chantry yeah. versus the Templars, right? Right. Yeah, they don't they do not trust magic users. They are outlaws in in some cases, and I, I like that. That it might not even be a god's thought of what like the god might actually not care at all. But the church of that god has made this holy war against magic users. Speaking of arcane energy i'm really interested to see what your guys thoughts are on this a lot of times there's these two thoughts with making homebrew worlds with how magic works that you have the option that magic and the arcane energy is either this unending supply it will never run out it replenishes itself or it's just simply always there but then there's the also the other option that magic is a limited supply, the well of magic can run dry, and the more that magic gets used, the closer you get to the end of all magic. What is your guys' takeaway from that? What do you guys like? Do you like the unending supply? Do you like the well running dry? This is something I'm actually thinking about right now for the world that I'm creating is I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through that exact thing because it's not something I've spent a lot of time with, but it's something that I probably should spend a little bit of time with. And I'm kind of... I, I think I have a solution that I'm looking at that's not either one of those things. Like, I'm looking at it where the well starts with very, very little. Like, it doesn't run out. It's never fully empty. But I'm I'm leaning more towards the side of the more people use it, the more the well gets full and the more Mm -hmm. magic is prevalent within the world until it gets to a point where pretty much anybody can cast spells because it's so prevalent. The well is overflowing into the world. And then it's going to cause this thing where people are like, Oh, crap. <laughs> There's way too much magic. And something <laughs> catastrophic happens where everybody's pretty much like, all right, look, I am. we are not doing magic. And then it slowly drains itself down. So I'm, I'm looking at that sort of idea over the the well runs dry from being used or the unending ending supply. It depends what thematically you want to explore with mm-hmm. magic. If 
you have a game or you're creating a world where the important thing is like political intrigue or yeah. something like that and you just want magic there then having an unending supply of magic is fine because you don't want to explore it i think the moment you tell certain players is like by the way magic's running out they're gonna be like well i need to figure out why yeah right, right. it's like right. anytime you start putting restrictions on stuff, there, yeah. it makes it more interesting yep. but also there's all these like little hooks that come out of it and, and start, you know, snagging the rest of the world. It's like, well, so if I pitch a wizard now, is it irresponsible for my character mm -hmm. to use magic? You know, do I have to multi-class or whatever uh, game you're running, the, the equivalent thing, so that I can hit people with a stick most of the time and only use magic <laughs> when it's absolutely necessary? Yep. You, that, those are things that you need to consider if you make magic a limited resource along with that you have to consider what happens as magic starts to run dry and how you're going to depict that in your world i think that's a really good point that if if you're not interested into delving into those questions like magic can just be an unending supply it's a stagnant thing you don't have to worry about it but if you want your players to become interested in where magic is coming from why it's coming from how much of it there is like the idea of magic can run out really does raise all those questions and can also if you're interested in like the future of your world and where your world goes the idea of magic running out or Chris, in your case, growing and growing and growing to the point of there's too much like it changes the world that you're living in. And honestly, magic should if magic exists in a fantasy world, it should change the way that the world works compared to yeah. like our world where there is no arcane energy. It should change those worlds. Even in Game of Thrones, magic is talked about having been stronger and that even affects like the creatures. Like there's not, there's not dragons really anymore. There's not this, there's not that. And so when it resurfaces, it's like this amazing thing. Yeah. I think a, a good example too, of not necessarily the magic itself surging, but of magic practitioners kind of expanding what they can do just by basically in the way that scientists would expand science is if you look at legend of korra versus avatar the last airbender mm -hmm. you know it's obviously a different type of magic that elemental magic but by the time we get to legend of korra we have people powering power plants with kind of electricity bending and the weird techniques that were kind of super rare at the beginning like metal bending have now become a part of everyday life, right? There's yeah. like a full force of like metal bender cops. You can expand that in that sense. That's kind of what Eberron does, mm -hmm. you know, in the world of Eberron, magic has been around for a long time. And right. basically the world of Eberron is this kind of like post-nuclear magical war era. So it, it really allows you to explore a lot of concepts where basically magic substitutes in for technology, but yeah. also takes the world in a different direction. Yeah, because the idea of technology is still going to get better. But in a world with magic, magic is absolutely going to affect how technology works. <laughs> like, And that should, that should take precedent if you are going to be making a homebrew world, then magic is a huge part of it. And you're going to go into a time where there is there's steam technology and whatever it is how does magic affect that as well is there just steam technology or is there a magic component and it might it's it's probably going to be different with whatever part of technology you're talking about some might be magic and technology mix some might just be technology some might just be magic but that is definitely something to be looked at i picture magic being this thing that could almost be a hindrance to technology moving forward because you see these things that 
you know, could be regular fixes, but that are easily fixed by some sort of magic thing. And I wonder what would happen if all of a sudden, like, tinkerers now became inventors as factories became bigger and bigger. And then what happens to magic users who people now see, like, well, we really don't have a need for you because our thing doesn't disappear after a little while. It just it it stays forever because we can make these types of things. There's a lot of interesting scenarios you can run into with that. So let's talk about magic users. In your homebrew world, when you're creating this idea of how magic works, you have to ask yourself, who is it that can use magic? And, you know, if you're playing 5th edition D&D, it's already pretty much set up for you that, well, you've got wizards and you've got sorcerers, but it is up to you when you're creating a homebrew world whether you want to change that around and say, no, there isn't this or there's more than this. So, first of all, who can use magic? I think, is is it just anyone? Because the D&D rules of wizards allows pretty much anyone to use magic as long as they are of an intelligent factor that they can actually study it and learn it and decipher how to use these spells. That's where the wizards come from in D&D. It's interesting because D&D comes with this kind of like very generic setting, right? Mm-hmm. You've got all this stuff. And then if you want to write your own <laughs> setting on top of it, you have to work around what D&D is already doing. Yeah. I mean, wizards are a great example. If you want magic to be this kind of like wild, untamed force that you tap into, you are now basically your world is now at odds with the concept of a D&D wizard. Yeah. So you either have to figure out how to write that in or you have to disallow wizards, which might not be a problem if your party doesn't want to play a wizard. But, you know, you can you can run into issues. Yeah, I mean, or or do they have to be really talented or really gifted? And I think of the D&D Sorcerer where it's like it comes from within who you are. Like you're almost born into that sort of talent that comes with you. Some of the struggle here is simply just because through all the different lores that have been explored in all the different versions of storytelling, the name of a wizard and a sorcerer and a witch and a warlock, like they're not all the same depending on what lore you you have. Like in in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is a wizard. But if you're talking about the D&D class breakdown, Gandalf is a sorcerer. He's not a wizard because it's it's this gifted talentedness of him. I, I would argue that Gandalf is a, like a weird NPC altogether. Like <laughs> yeah, wizards, wizards in Lord of the Rings aren't even like human, right? Yeah, They're like a yeah. completely different yep. space monster that just like comes and lives as a human shaped thing in the world. You're right. They are these creatures that were created by the gods. They're almost like this angels of the lord of the rings universe they live to thousands of years and yeah it's it's not that class it's who they are as a being yeah when you get into that the DD breakdown is pretty arbitrary in a lot of ways especially in something like fifth edition where you have sorcerers and you have wizards and sorcerers get their powers from this like inspiration source of some kind Mm -hmm. and wizards get them through study but they actually cast the exact same spells i've always been interested in that aspect because it means that magic kind of has has to have this like underlying formula regardless of how you tap it you can always make a leomund's tiny hut right So it's like, what is it about the shape of Leoman's tiny hut that is like written into the arcane fabric of the universe? 
that you can actually, regardless of how you arrive at it, you get the exact same You arrive thing. at it. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. Yeah, there are in D&D, because D&D is a gaming system, they're come along with the factors of if you're looking at the rules and you're going, well, this kind of determines lore in a sense. Magic has rules to it. It's all about that formula. And you do this and you do this and that produces this. As a DM, I have plenty of times I don't like my world having that magic has a formula. I want my world to be magic is this weird force that can be used for so many different things. And in my world and in my mind, I imagine that the spells that are used by sorcerers and wizards are what humans and elves and whatever is using it, what they have tapped into and what they have gleaned from it, even with the talented and gifted side of, of sorcerers, because I've run into so many times where I'll be DMing and I'll create a monster or a wizard and I'll, I'll have them cast this spell that it's not a spell from the rule book. It's it's something that I'm like, well, I want them to use this power to affect the battle in this way and it'll create this really awesome effect. And then I've had moments where a player will go, is that this spell? Because I am unaffected by this spell, if that is the case. And I'm like, well, it, it's not really. It's not a spell that's in your rule book. And therein lies the issue. But it raises interesting questions. Just in that, you can get into a lot of different things like are magic and spells synonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that in and of itself is something. If you've ever played a game called Exalted, which I'm a big fan of, basically all of your protagonist type characters, the Exalted, can do magic. They are intrinsically magical and their abilities and everything they do is like infused by this, these small magical effects called charms. But also there's sorcery and sorcery are the big spells where you change the weather or Hmm. make the ground explode in like magma tentacles or whatever. And they're two different things, and they come from basically two different sources. You know, if you have a dragon that has an ability to charm whoever looks at it or inspire fear in someone, are they actually casting a spell, or is that just some magical ability that they have? And if so, how do the players who can cast spells and do counter magic and all this stuff, how do they interact with it? That's definitely something that you have to think about. When you introduce, you know, multiple kind of modes of magic. Absolutely. So when you're creating a world, that's something you want to think of. And you also want to think about, am I going to allow? And I think, Rodrigo, you made a really good point about this is uh, if your players want to play wizards and you just say, nope, you can't play a wizard. You may be running into an issue there. You may need to just do some explaining and say, well, you know, this is the world I've created, but we will have to play in a world where wizards are allowed because you want to play a wizard. And, And honestly, players should be allowed to try their classes out that they want to. You have to make it part of the pitch, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're playing in the Dark Sun universe, there are no divine casters, right? So if you're like, okay, guys, we're playing Dark Sun, there are not going to be any divine casters. So all of your awesome concepts for a cleric, put them away. <laughs> yep. You're you're playing a dirt farmer with like a turtle shell shield, and that's all you get because yep. Dark Sun is terrible. Which hey, a turtle a turtle shell is pretty still pretty cool for a shield. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, what I meant. It was it's terrible in the best possible way. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah, terrible yeah. in the same way that like trekking across Westeros is supposed to be terrible. Well, yeah, you got to make that part of your pitch, like you said. You got to make them understand. Hey guys, this isn't a like 
I'm trying to punish you by not letting you play this. This is a, I've created this world. There is reasoning behind this. Please understand the reasoning with me and get into the lore with me and embrace it. And let's see where this story goes. And so, no, there aren't wizards in this world, but there are sorcerers. And that's the, that's something that could be helpful if, if you have a, another option, too, of, well, there aren't wizards because not everybody can learn magic. Magic is not a learnable thing, but it comes from a bloodline that you have. Like, only certain people have this, whether it's those who have dragon blood in them. They can have talented, gifted magical powers and they become sorcerers or it can maybe it's a family thing only a certain family throughout history only certain families are those who have this magic flowing through their blood so yes D sorcerers are an option so i know you can't play a wizard but let's try a sorcerer yeah i love the idea of the it being like a family thing like maybe the family way back at the beginning of the world was almost like created by a specific god or he created a specific group of people and it's like whoever is a part of that family and maybe it's only like if you're pure-blooded of that family line like you can then i'm thinking like harry potter and and muggles here like they <laughs> yep. the people that are not muggles they hate muggles and maybe it's that sort of thing where it's like you can you can cross families but you're just not as powerful at that point in time but like the pure the pure blooded sorcerers or wizards or whatever are the people that are like the most snotty about it and and the people that are almost hold it above the rest of the world that they are the chosen ones that can can be the ones that can use magic right and and magic that's a good example of how magic can influence culture right so you know, you have guys like the what Theans from Forgotten Realms, mm-hmm. who are like it's like a culture ruled by wizards, and it's yeah. like the only way to advance is to actually be a wizard. <laughs> so stuff like Harry Potter, where within the wizard community, you have these castes, basically yes. of like how pure is your blood, kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely, that's that's definitely something to look into if you want a lot of magic in your world, if you want magic to be the sort of thing that like most of your players and, and cultures are going to be tapping into, their approach to it, and, and the sort of people always find an excuse to be terrible to each other, and in a world with magic, you find a lot of fresh new veins to mine and the mm-hmm. people being terrible to each other. Chris, I really like that idea of the gods at the beginning of the world's creation. Families have it because they were either touched by the gods, like the gods like gave them a power that like now is in their blood, or honestly, maybe they are descendants of Bokob, came in the form of a human and had relations with a human woman, and thus that family of magic users was born. And maybe there's warring families, like we just did the same thing, and now there's these families that one comes from the line of Bokob, one comes from the line of Weejoss, and you have the these families who are very powerful because they have magic flowing through their veins. And I mean, it can, as the time in your world goes on and on, does it like start to wane because they're getting so far away from the source? And then you have, you have a young boy and a young girl who love each other and can only talk through the crack in the wall. And you have Romeo and Juliet within your world, but through magic. <laughs> yeah, a descendant of Weejas <laughs> and a descendant of Bokov. <laughs> they are just star-crossed lovers that can't fall in love. It's and their allowed. child is born and all he can do is spell failure yeah. all the time. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, and I think, too, even, even along the lines of bloodlines, maybe it's not something that 
that it's not necessarily just a bloodline thing. It could be like there's secret societies or keepers of the secret knowledge of the magic that like somebody long ago found out how to harness this power and they've kept it so closely guarded that it doesn't get out to the rest of the world but they know the secrets there's like the the secret handshake or the secret magic handshake or whatever to get into this place where you are only allowed to train and learn new ways of magic there and like maybe it's something that magic is so secretive that you can't be caught doing it type thing too like maybe it's you have to do things behind the scenes that people can't see but these people with magical powers are controlling the people around them i think of like you know, people talk about the Illuminati here and how they control things behind the scenes and people don't really know who's a part of it. And And I almost imagine like magic users and soci- secret societies being the people that can cast a charm spell on some king and nobody knows why the king starts acting a certain way. And it's part of the secret society's agenda that they're trying to move in a certain direction through the means of secret powers like that. Yeah, I mean, and that, that can lead to, well, my world doesn't have sorcerers, but my world has wizards. But I I like all of these options that we're saying because, yes, you can just have a world where wizards and sorcerers are, yeah, you can be a wizard or a sorcerer. But if you want to make magic have this limited like, well, you have to be a sorcerer or you have to be a wizard or it's not that you have to be a sorcerer or wizard. You can choose between them. But, well, here's the thing, player A, if you choose to be a sorcerer, well, sorcerers are – only around because they're either born of this family that came from Bokob or this family that came from Weejas. So now you can already from the get-go of your player deciding to be a sorcerer, get them into your world and say, would you like to be from the family of Bokob or would you like to be from the family of Weejas? And then you get to explain to them all the things that come along with that and where their family line has come from and the history of that if you're really into that. Same thing with like if in your world wizards are part of a secret society that only they from inside the secret society know how to learn magic and stuff like that. Well, maybe there's multiple secret societies or maybe there's one, but you right off the bat can go, all right, well, you want to play a wizard. Let's get you into the lore of my world. Let's talk about this because this is something you need to know. And the, interestingly, with the kind of secret society angle, you can actually, because again, multiple people can arrive at the same thing from different sources You could have basically your secret societies be here's this like hermetic Illuminati type thing and they're all wizards. Like here's this society where like, okay, welcome to the uh, secret society. Here's your chalice full of dragon blood. Mm -hmm. If you survive, congratulations, you're now a sorcerer. Yeah, maybe welcome to the secret society. You have to sign this in your blood. Yeah. Now Baal owns your soul and you're a warlock. That's, Good job. That's fantastic. Yeah, magic can come from dangerous places, which brings us into our next thing. But I love that idea of it's not about just being born into it. You can you can sign up to be part of this group, but once you're in this group, you're never leaving this group because you have signed this and now your life is signed away to this power that maybe it doesn't even reveal itself until you have, like you said, signed in blood or whatever it is. So let's talk about the dangers of magic in in some lore and in your homebrew world. You might decide that magic isn't just something that is cast and there's no consequences to the casting of the magic, but there could be danger behind using magic. Yeah, I mean, you could you could have to pay a price, whether that's like you have to sign yourself over to this thing for the rest of your life. And it could be a really bad teenage mistake. You're just like, oh yeah, this sounds super cool. <laughs> right. And then later on in your life, you're like, oh my 
God, you regret it was, the like, rest of your you life. You have to yeah. keep doing what you're doing, but you had to pay that price to get in at first. And you know, you're like, oh yeah, maybe a whole life sentence to this won't be that bad. And then you have had to, you know, if you join a, a dangerous cult that does crazy things with magic, it's like, ah, well now I'm doing things that I never thought I was going to do, but I can't stop doing them unless mm-hmm. I want to die. That type of thing. Right. Price unless you want to become an enemy of what is clearly a very powerful group of people. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. And you think at that time you like try to run away, like they'll find you. They they could probably find you type thing. Yeah. Which in and of itself is a, a, a little plot hook for a player, right? It's yeah. like, okay, here's, here's my character concept. I joined this evil cult <laughs> as a stupid mistake. And then I was like, no, you know what? Sacrificing virgins is not really for me. And now they're after me because I have all their secrets. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the idea of magic having a price in the sense of every spell that is cast has a price. And some prices to be paid might not be honestly that important that it really matters. But I like the idea of, well... You yes, you can resurrect somebody. You can bring them back to life, but for every life there must be a death. And so somewhere around the world, whenever somebody is resurrected, somebody has to die for that person to be resurrected. Or maybe it's like something along the lines of you need to pay the price yourself and in order to use resurrection magic, you have to have the blood of an innocent and that's getting us really dark into the dangers of magic. But that, that makes resurrection, not like a happy, yay, we can just resurrect the bard because he fell to the Cyclops. It goes, yeah, you could resurrect that bard, but there's a price to be paid for resurrection in this world. It's not a simple spell that you just poof. And then he's, he's up again. There's a lot of stuff that that you can do with that. You can say something like, you know, your higher level spells are going to cost you more. They'll Mm -hmm. like, going to eat up your hit points or whatever or cause you a lot of discomfort and that is why evil people just sacrifice other people right it's like you can mitigate those costs by making other people miserable Mm -hmm. but if you have an altruistic wizard or sorcerer or whatever then they have to take that on to themselves as far as costs there's this idea of like taboo magic where basically you get powers if you forsake certain things or behave in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, you can shoot fire out of your nostrils, but you can never eat anything that's more flavor flavorful than rice, <laughs> right? And it's like, if you ever do, you lose that ability. Yeah. So it's like observing these taboos, and the more power you want, the more drastic your taboos have to be. Like, you have to cover one eye, and if you ever uncover that eye then you lose your powers. Yeah, I think, or like if if you uncover that eye, you just lose the ability to see altogether. I love the idea of also, speaking of like a price to be paid or like something can't come from nothing kind of the idea of the lore behind a fireball is you're casting a fireball and you're calling fire from the plane of fire. And that's where that fire comes from. I like the idea of that going along into summoning like the summoning of creatures the idea that we get especially i think for those of us who have played D video games is you you cast the creature it attacks until it gets hit and it dies and poof it's gone in a puff of smoke but what if that creature actually was a creature from somewhere and so that wizard who summons a bunch of creatures and all of a sudden there's these blink dogs that are fighting for him that druid knowing that those blink dogs are real creatures that have been called from somewhere else 
And if they end their time in battle by dying and then going poof and disappearing, they're poofing back to their plane of existence or wherever they were in the world before they were called. And they're just appearing as a dead body because that was the way that the spell worked. It wasn't just creating something out of nothing, but it's it's there's a price to be paid. And if you and you might have the druids in your world hate wizards because they're like, uh, they will summon creatures and they they kill innocent creatures because of it. The ethics of summoning are, are actually is actually a really rich vein. I played a Planescape game a long time ago and we had a, a player who was a sylph. This like little summoning gem appeared and started chasing yeah. her. And it was like we were trying to keep her from getting summoned <laughs> by some wizard in the prime material that's plane, awesome. you know, because oh, that stuff happens. And it had happened to her before. She was like, yeah, I was like some wizard summoned me. I like cast my eye spell a couple times and then I got hit and then I poofed back here. But it's like hugely inconvenient. Right. In yeah. that setting, the critters don't die. I don't know if that's Planescape in general or, or that was the uh, specific game master's take on it. But that idea of what exactly happens, mm-hmm. um, there's a few games out there where like all you can really summon are demons Mm -hmm. and nobody has too many qualms about throwing a demon into battle right it's like good summoners summon demons bad summoners summon demons because who cares they're demons if they die they die yeah five certifiably awful things Mm -hmm. that nobody really feels too bad about them dying right plus they're like specifically kind of hard to kill yeah, but that also speaks to, once again, that danger of magic because there are also lore where summoners summon demons and demons are always trying to break the spell of the summoner and get control of the summoner. And then you've got demons taking over and possessing the bodies of powerful wizards that they figured out because magic can be something that it's like almost like a science. Like if you do one thing wrong then you have broken the line between that demon being able to take control of you. But I I love that idea because it, it turns a world on its head. And, you know, I think when a lot of people create homebrew worlds, they think, oh, like, who are the bad wizards? Well, of course, they're going to be the necromancers because they're raising the dead. But in your world, if you take these ideas Summoners could be the the worst of the worst and seen as like the most dangerous and most evil of magic because they they are summoning other creatures, real creatures, whether they're demons that it's like it's dangerous to summon the demons or whether it's they're summoning real creatures or like in the game you played, Rodrigo, people to fight for them. Summoners have no respect for other creatures lives and honestly necromancers might be like oh yeah they're necromancers they raise people from the dead they're already dead whatever but the summoners are evil (laughs) yeah and i mean that's important and that's that's something that i would definitely urge anybody who's thinking of coming up with a homebrew game to do is consider expectations and consider where to change or subvert those expectations, right? It's like everything from we are going to walk into a forest full of elves. I know what that's like. And it turns out that the elves in that forest are actually creepy necromancers. Two is like, oh, we're about to like this town is ruled by a necromancer. And then you walk in and there's just all of these kind of like angelic looking spirits guarding the gates and you know maybe a few skeletons around doing menial tasks and it's like well this is like this weird necromantic utopia and when Mm -hmm. people die they're more than happy to donate their bodies to the necromancer so that they can continue helping this place and basically have this like unending supply of labor 
that only boosts the yeah. economy, right? Yep. So it's like you can have these uh, moments that subvert those expectations. And thankfully, D&D coming from a long pedigree of kind of like Tolkien-esque, people already come with these like hardwire expectations and you can get a lot of mileage out of subverting them. I think that along with like there being this price to magic, I think that there could also be this sense of magic is uncontrollable and going back to that like magic is like a science like if you do if you don't fully understand it if you don't follow the formula correctly you might unleash spells that weren't the spells you were hoping or you might in the sense of and i know i don't i don't know if you've ever used them rodrigo but chris and me have loved using spell failure charts in the past just because they're they're chaotic and they're fun and just like being like oh well you didn't succeed on that concentration roll so let's pull out this spell failure chart and see if anything weird happens and magic just can run amok through your world and have that sense of well magic is dangerous because if you do it wrong this might happen. I just think too, like it, you know, it being uncontrollable, if you were to going back to summoners, summon a demon or summon a blink dog or summon something to fight on your behalf and you don't do the spell completely right. Like maybe it'll still happen, but then the creature doesn't disappear after a minute or so. They're just like here forever. And you've just, you've just allowed this invasive blink dog species. If they're not in your world on that plane into your world on the plane, or you've, done this you know demon onto your world that isn't now just going to disappear at some point in time like you've just unleashed this thing potentially under the world that it's like well i did it wrong i couldn't control what i was doing and now we all have to suffer the consequences for it there's a few games out there um the mage games from white wolf are, are a good example where basically anytime you're casting a spell it's like, have you guys ever like taken a rubber band and make like a little gun with your fingers and like yep. wrapped it around oh, yeah. and like try to shoot it at someone? Yep. Like, is it is it is it not true that half the time you move the wrong finger and it just snaps you in the <laughs> face? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's exactly. You can do that with magic. You can say, okay, well, anytime a spell fails, you can have something bad happen to the character or just fire in a weird random direction. Yep. The, the interesting thing about that kind of spell failure idea is actually that sometimes they're beneficial. I think the, yeah. I was looking through, I want to say I was looking through the wild sorcerer in D&D Next, and they have some stuff where it's like, okay, so your spell misfires and you get like a momentary plus one to mm-hmm. something just because it just so happened that this was weirdly beneficial. Yeah, like we've used spell failure before and that's exactly it. Like whenever spell failure happens, the whole table is alert and there's both fear and there's excitement because all oh, this could be good or this could be extremely bad. We have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Hey, there's there's 10 D10, you know, gems that are each worth 50 gold or you have a <laughs> fireball detonate right on your spot. Yep. You know, it could be it could be either one of those things. And I'm wondering, too, with it being uncontrollable, I wonder if it's one of those things that, you know, if you're in a world, maybe you could create magic to a point where. You know, almost like that that classic saying, practice makes perfect. Maybe the first couple of times you, you cast a spell, it's like, I don't know how to do this right. It's going to go wrong no matter what. But the more you cast it, like say you have to cast it 15 times and then you have it perfected and you don't have to worry about it. But the first, you know, 14 or so times, 
you have to worry about something going wrong and something not working the right way because it's uncontrollable and you need to harness it, you need to practice it type thing. The important thing about that is these are all cool ideas, but you're going to have to go through some iterations when you're implementing stuff like this in your game if it's not written into the game. So if you really, really want a a world in which all wizards at all times can just completely have a spectacular misfire of their spells, you almost have to give them something in return. You have to be like, in order to balance the fact that your spells could just misfire and really harm you. It's like all wizards cast everything as like two caster levels higher or something like that. Right. Right. Just kind of have that give and take because you're, if the game is already balanced without it, you have to kind of tweak that balance again. Yeah. Why would you cast magic? Well, because yeah, it's dangerous, but it's also really powerful. So I want to be, I want to be the glass cannon that hopefully I don't explode myself and everybody else. <laughs> you can always look up systems that have stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know about this latest version of Shadowrun, but previous versions of Shadowrun kind of made magic a multi-step deal. You kind of had this like casting thing and then like this soaking thing because the like of the energy backlash. Characters that had a good intelligence and especially like your elves and stuff were good at casting really big spells, but bad at soaking that return energy and could conk themselves out accidentally when casting, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. if you had somebody with like a very high constitution, (laughs) the spells wouldn't be as big because their intelligence wasn't necessarily as high, but then the the soaking of the magic wasn't that big of a deal. So you can look at stuff like that and basically implement ways to save it, maybe at a feat that is like, okay, well, you have now managed to reduce the bad effects to just these that are, you know, kind of, these neutral effects or something like that yeah i think the another way that is fairly obvious that we've talked a little bit about in the dangers of magic is that it just falls into the wrong hands like magic's great if you have someone behind like gandalf behind it but then you get it in the hands of saruman or sauron and it's like magic is all of a sudden like it could be world devastating it can be a danger to the entire world a bad wizard is like just the prime archetypical like gaming bad guy, mm-hmm. right? Because it it just gives you an explanation as to why they're able to do what they want. It's yep. actually a lot harder to run like a bad king than it is to run a bad wizard because, you know, magic gives you an explanation for pretty much everything. But the good thing about it is that if you do have these ideas about what you want magic in your world to be, it gives you that prime example or that prime place for your players to look at and see, like, see, this guy was driven crazy by magic. Or his spells are really powerful because he just, you know, slaughters a person a day in this altar and it mitigates the consequences. Or his spells never go bad because he made some pact with something. Yeah, I think that a bad wizard is the perfect example of a lot of times a character who wants power and with magic, he gets it. And the more power he gets, the more power he wants. And the more power he gets, the more dangerous it is for everyone else. As we're thinking further and further into magic, we've talked a little bit about what it can do to your world, you know, from from the player's point of view what you can do with the world but then you have on the flip side what is the world's view 
of magic? You know, is it is it openly accepted? Is it that thing that, you know, there's there's way more good people out there than there are bad people. So it's it's accepted. The good outweighs the bad. We we love it and we accept it and it does a lot of good things for us. Is that is that how the world views it? Or is it is it different than that? I think, yeah, there's a lot of room for stuff like that. For example, in Critical Hit, you know, when we talk about the source, I'm running through a fourth edition filter. So magic comes from different sources. There's primal magic, mm -hmm. there's arcane magic, there's divine magic, right? And depending on where you go, people have these like largely arbitrary views on it. It's like, oh, divine magic, that comes from the gods. That's great. Even though there's evil divine magic, right? And primal magic is like, ooh, that's weird. It's like, I can't, like, you guys are, like, making this weird green mist go over all these plants. That's weird. I don't like it. Even though it might be beneficial primal magic. So you can even have, I'm sure you can think of real-world examples where people are like, this version of this is good, this version of this is bad, yeah. and there's no real logic to it. It's just what they've been taught to think or what they think because of tradition Actually, this happened also in a game that I played. My character was like completely okay. We had a wizard and he's like, yep, I know what a wizard is. And we had a scion and he had never met one before. So he had just <laughs> assumed that he was in league with some sort of demon. And he was cool with it, but he wouldn't let it go that the guy was probably in league with a demon because he had never seen a scion before. Yeah. So, you know, you can you can get a you can get a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah, so you have like the openly accepted, like the world just accepts magic. It can also be in a sense praised, like people can think magic is fantastic because it is and you and me have seen this in good or bad as the DM in our seats and I'm sure Rodrigo you've seen this as well, but it can be a an easy answer to some really big problems that sometimes for DMs is like, oh, magic, why are you always the answer? <laughs> <laughs> but it can also be completely feared, especially if it's misunderstood or maybe it is feared because it is understood and it's danger. And there could also, if especially if you're talking about a world that there isn't a lot of magic, there can be complete and total disbelief. Like, I don't believe magic is a thing. Maybe there are a lot of charlatans that aren't, that are creating not real magic. And so when a real magic user comes along, there could be this sense of awe because, wow, it's really magic. Or this, there's this like, ah, it's just another trick, whatever. Yeah, the bards come in and tell the tales of these crazy magicians from long way, a long ways away. And then one all of a sudden shows up and it's like, wait, wait. These are just stories. They're not actually real. You're yeah. not doing anything that we actually believe is happening right before our eyes. Whichever one of these that you choose, you could have a world that magic interacts with the law in different ways. We talked at the beginning about holy wars against magic users and things like that by religious groups and whatever. But the law of different countries and maybe even just the world may interact with magic in different ways ways so uh, the first one would be that magic could be completely unregulated and i think that this probably fits into a world where magic is a new thing and the reason it's unregulated is because it's just like popping up and there haven't been laws set into place and so people use magic and it's just like well i don't i don't know what to do about it unless he kills somebody with it then he killed somebody so i guess we can arrest him now yeah, or there's not any wizards or magic users in the government that could regulate it anyways. And so these people are like, well, we just, I mean, there's nothing we could do about it anyways. So it's just going to be unregulated. 
Or maybe it's the fact that they're afraid of because yeah, right. there's only a certain number of wizards or sorcerers, and it's just like there's no law built around it because nobody wants to pass a law to say you can't cast fireball because they're afraid of having a fireball cast <laughs> yeah, on them. Right. Yeah, ahead. yeah, because they find it useful when somebody casts a yeah. fireball for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you could go the opposite side of that where there's some wizards who are in power now in, in governmental positions who see the dangers of it being fully unregulated and therefore decide that it needs to be regulated in whatever way that looks like. And that could be something like where all magic users have to register and they have to, you know, know what sort of spells they, they can't lie about what kind of spells that they know and, and whatnot. Like only good magic is allowed. Only good magic is, is the stuff that you can, you can register for. Yeah, like I think of Harry Potter where there are unforgivable curses that are totally outlawed. Like if you use those, you are going to be an outlaw and you're you're not allowed to use specific types of magic. But regulation could also go from the idea of, well, these are the allowed spells and these are the not allowed spells. Or here are the wizards, like you said, Chris, like registered magic users that if you're part of this or this or this registered group, you can use magic. If you're not, then we might send these registered groups to to hunt you down and you might be put in prison. But it can also just be a regulation of where you can use magic as well. Like, well, you cannot use magic inside the city. If you do, you will be arrested. Maybe they have registered magic users that are like police of magic and so they can detect when magic is being used and come down on you and arrest you if you use magic inside of a city but you can use whatever the heck you want if it's on the open road road in the wilderness because you know if a troll comes at you we're not going to tell you you can't use fireball if fireball goes off in the middle of the forest and nobody's around to hear it does it make sense (laughs) you know or is it or is it just specific times you can't use magic within the city i think that could be another way that they control and regulate it as well and going along with this whole idea of it being outlawed like you can run into magic users who don't follow the laws or maybe it's completely outlawed like maybe magic is in a world it is not allowed at all so anytime magic is used those magic users are going to have their faces put on wanted posters and they're going to be hunted down and they are going to be, if they can be, destroyed. Maybe you have in your world specific classes that are such as like a mage killer and maybe they are they're these people who are sanctioned by the law to hunt down wizards and sorcerers and maybe they're equipped with items that are able to negate magic maybe they're equipped with like poisons that like they shoot at the wizards and hopefully put the wizard to sleep before they can use spells and such like that and they're specially trained to quickly take down the magic users before the magic users can use any magic and i think too you could do an interesting flip side to it being regulate or regulated you could have it like where the people want people to be arrested for doing illegal magic so therefore they know it and are just gaining even more power by learning all of the evil magic so that someday they can go and just unleash on the world and nobody can stop them because they have no answer for it unless you were those people that were regulating what was going on the good thing about a a world where magic is regulated is that you can play it from either side right yeah you can be the magical Cadmus everdeen of your world and rebel against the people that aren't letting you mm-hmm. use your spells basically it's like the x-men right you, yeah where you know the government's trying to send robots to kill you yeah or create um, a cure to yep, make exactly, your powers exactly. go away yep there's both ways to play it right your character can be that witch hunter 
or your character can be that Kitty Pride. Yeah. And what happens if you have a group where you start playing a game and you have one player who wants to be a, a mage hunter or whatever, and you have one player who wants to be a sorcerer? Do you say no? I don't think you say no. I think you go, there's a story here. Let's let's make sure the players are going to be mature enough about it and not just when they like can try and kill each other at every chance. But like, you know, you have two players that go, you're a mage hunter. I'm a wizard. There's a story here of how we can understand each other and we can like make make changes in this world. Yeah, but what's what's really important there is that you have to be really hands on as a game master mm-hmm. about the circumstances that bring those characters yes. together. Because if you if you see any story that has that sort of thing, like that kind of enemy mind story, it's like there has <laughs> nice to be a reference. reason why those two characters aren't killing each other right now. Yep. And you have to construct it really well so that then when the players get into it, they're like, oh, actually, we can't kill each other right now. And that can be very difficult because players are clever and sometimes in the pursuit of playing their characters, they kind of are kind of get blinded to the overall themes that you're trying to do, mm-hmm. which is okay because they're not necessarily privy to all of your ideas and notes and everything. You know, sometimes you have to include that as part of the pace. You're like, okay, well, this is a world in which you have people hunting down wizards. One of you is going to be a wizard. One of you is going to be a hunter. And we have to come up with a reason as to why you're not killing each other right away. And then maybe put it on the players to figure out a good reason for that. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that is a very important thing that you need to do if you're starting out a campaign with these two characters. You need to have like an outside of game discussion about that before you jump into the game and just expect both players to be super chill with it. Like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the world. Let's talk about what the problem is and why you guys would immediately want to just attack each other. And so, yeah, whether it's something that you as the DM are like, well, here's the story that I'm thinking. And so are you guys okay with this is it? Or maybe you, like you said, go, guys, let's work together out a reason why you guys can't. And you guys tell me what what is going to be the reason why that you guys aren't able to or want to kill each other right off the bat, um, which maybe there's a an enemy that they both have that they're like, well, I hate being part of a group with you but I could use you right now. And so we're going to do that. Or maybe they find out that they are part of the same family and they're like conflicted because of that, because they want to kill them because he's a magic user. He's a mage killer, but we've just found out that we have the same dad or something like that. Like something, there's so many things. Yeah. A greater conspiracy. It's like, they both find out that actually the witch hunters have control of the government Mm -hmm. and they're bad. Right. So, Here's this guy who is now questioning everything and is like, well, should I kill all the witches? Because maybe they're not that bad. Or, you know, there's always the the thing is like, okay, you guys find yourselves in a very steep canyon. There's a T-Rex here with you. Go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you going to kill each other right now? Or are you going to realize that there's a bigger threat right now? <laughs> exactly. So I think the last thing that we want to talk about in the idea of the lore of magic and the dangers of magic and everything that has to do with magic, if you're creating a homebrew world and you're trying to decide how magic works in it, I think you need to determine how commonplace is magic in your world is magic just everywhere and there are magic users everywhere or is it a rare thing so let's let's talk about the differences of how it affects a world 
with each of those options. So first, let's talk about magic is commonplace. So there are magic users everywhere. How does this affect a world when magic is commonplace? It allows you to do a lot of things. It allows you to sub in magic for some technology stuff. You could have a world that basically has cell phones. If you want to do this kind of medieval (laughs) uh, fantasy thing, but have higher communication, trains, planes, automobiles, you know, whatever you want. That's something that having commonplace magic allows you to do. It also allows for like the, like your very wondrous places to be your home base, you know, like this like your kind of Sharn city of towers type places that could only be constructed through through magic. The issue there is that you have to account for things and you have to account as to why there are things that magic can't fix or solve. In those situations, you really kind of want to make magic actually more mundane to where they're like, well, why don't, can't we just bring everybody back from the dead? It's like, well, there's all these issues with it. Magic is way better at paving roads than it is at, like, resurrecting the dead. Yeah, or you're harking back to, well, there's a price for resurrection. It's not just something we can cast every time. Whether that's, like, you go back to material components needed and stuff like that, so it's expensive to cast it. Or for every life, there must be a death or something along those lines. Because, yeah, you're right. Magic in a world that is commonplace and everywhere it can often become the ultimate solution for every problem that is brought up. Like, well, why don't we just use magic and change that? Because that's not really a problem because we have all these magic users. Oh, I charge into a room and I don't have to worry about being dead for the rest of my life? Sweet. (laughs) If you play in a world where resurrection can just be done all the time, and I've, I've made that DMing mistake and had players go, oh, yeah, like, that's fine. We just pay the gold and resurrect the person. The fear, and it's not so much about fear, but the, like, caution in players, they just start playing characters that are unrealistic. They are not worried about having an axe brought down through their face and going through their body because they're like, ah, we'll just resurrect. And that's really not good role-playing there's a way to do it you know it's like if you guys have ever watched dragon ball z it's like it seems the characters spend the majority of their time resurrecting the yes. people that died in the process of resurrecting the last set of a, people that died that's a true statement <laughs> yeah Prillin more so, times than not so you know yeah there, there's a way to do it and a way to make it interesting for the people involved yeah. but it's it, it's a slippery it's a slippery situation when basically you hit level eight or whatever and you can start resurrecting whoever anytime. Yep, exactly. Well, and if you have it commonplace too, you know, if we talk about magic items, maybe if it's commonplace magic items aren't as expensive as, you know, what they originally once were. And so you have like Joe Schmo who couldn't make this on his own or pay for it in a world where magic was super rare, but now everybody's walking around with a plus two sword because it's it's yeah. way less expensive and because everybody can can cast magic, it's it, it it makes sense that people could imbue magic upon a weapon and and therefore driving down the price of that sort of thing. And and the important thing is you have to you really have to think about what your themes are. What do you want to accomplish through making magic commonplace? Right? It's like you might want. Have you guys ever watched Samurai Jack? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you might want that. You know, the, the opening to a lot of the shows where he's in a city and it's just like all of these weird things yeah. walking around like robots and aliens and monsters, people with like weird helmets and weird armor and stuff. Yeah. It's like if that's the scene you want when you open on the city that your players just got into, then magic being commonplace is great. Yes. You know, 
But if you want it to be something like Game of Thrones, where it's like every once in a while, like a witch shows up and they're like, oh, crap, a single witch. What are we going to do about this? Then magic being rare is what you want. Yeah. And that that gets us into that idea of magic being rare in a world. Like, what does that bring about? And that makes magic more of a wondrous thing. Like when your characters meet that witch or that wizard, it's not just like, oh, just another NPC wizard or another NPC witch. It's like, holy cow, we haven't experienced meeting a witch or a wizard since we began this campaign. This is not something that we're going to just gloss over. I'm really interested in this. I'm really afraid of this, whatever it is. Magic becomes this this monumentous moment of when it's seen, it's crazy and it's it, it is. It's that rare idea of it's it's not commonplace anymore. Yeah, and people are like rolling out the red carpet for the wizard that they can see from a ways away or something like that. Like Yeah, or they're they're burning their their torches and they're grabbing their pitchforks because we we must burn her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I think a great example of this is um, actually Skyrim, not specifically with magic, but with dragons. Right? It's like yeah, right. you guys have played Skyrim. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. The first time when you run into your first dragon in Skyrim, you are like, holy <laughs> crap! Yes. And the first time that you run into a dragon out in the open world, there's like, oh, there's no NPCs to help me fight this. Right? Yeah. Yep. It's like, it's crazy, but you think about dragons in video games, and it's like, there are games where it's like, okay, welcome, player one. Here's the dragon you ride in. Now go shoot down dragons. Yep. (laughs) But it it says a lot about how you set it up. In a world where there are no dragons and a bunch of dragons show up, that's a big deal. In a world where nobody can do magic, and all of a sudden... You find a person who can, you know, maybe even do something small, maybe raise a few skeletons or, you know, just uh, charm and enchant people into doing their bidding. Be able to that is a big deal. And it becomes this huge deal mm-hmm. in a world where that stuff is not commonplace. Yeah, that's a good point. Like in Skyrim, like there are when you first encounter those dragons, you go into town and like there's dialogue between you and like npcs that are like dragons you're crazy there's no dragons alive anymore they are and some people i think in that game like honestly think that the stories of dragons are myths and they're legends and they're not even real and that same thing can come into a world where magic is rare like you might encounter a wizard out in the wilderness and it's like whoa they did this and they cast this and they summon these creatures you go back into town and you're wondering how this wizard hasn't been caught and you tell people about it and everybody laughs at you because they're like a wizard out in the woods i don't think so you're crazy yeah you're now seen as the town fool interestingly you can even accomplish that in a world where magic is commonplace as long as you're using a different Mm -hmm. type of magic that is not commonplace so Mm -hmm. you can have you know your wizards and sorcerers and stuff and everybody's used to them and then the first time somebody meets a like psionic person who is like manifesting goop constructs out of their (laughs) brain they're like what was that i don't know i've never seen that before we have Mm -hmm. no idea what to do about this I think one of my favorite things about um, magic being rare in the world is that the items like you were talking, Chris, like items, magic items are super not rare in a world that magic is commonplace. You might walk into a magic item shop and it's just like wall to wall, like magic swords and magic shields and magic armor, and magic trinkets. But you might walk into a magic store in a another world and it's like they have three magic items that are priced like crazy amounts. And the reason they can stay open is because when they do 
sell something, it's like super expensive, but magic items become an, a really, really special, amazing thing. And I think part of the thing that makes me like that is, you know, I've, I've DM'd so much that I've had moments where it's like, you, I give magic items and I'm waiting for the players to be like, Oh sweet. This trident that the spear ends are made of ice and it does frost damage and it can have a chance to freeze them in place for a turn. And you see when you make magic items, a commonplace, you see moments where you give your players a item and they're like, yeah, but none of us really want to try it. And so, uh, whatever, I'll sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Look down and make adjustments in their characters. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Can we it's have not something a big deal. different, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the worst. The thing about making items rare, especially in D and D is that you have to have some mitigating circumstance mm-hmm. because, or, or, or something written like that you're putting into the game to account for that because the game assumes that you're going to get magic items. Yeah. If you're like, oh, magic items are rare, then you got to do something like previous editions have had something like inherent bonuses, where you just get basically the, these enhanced, these flat enhancement bonuses to boost up your stats to uh, simulate having a magic item. And then it's like, yeah, one of you gets a magic sword and everybody gathers around it like it's Christmas. Um, <laughs> you can do that, but you have to be careful and have that system set up. Otherwise, things are going to get very difficult and they're going to become progressively more difficult as the game gets harder and and the monsters get more basically more options to screw with you well it's funny because you just in talking about that brought up a brought up a problem with magic items being rare is that and you find this magical mithril sword that does fire damage and it is called whatever the amazing name of the sword is called it has been passed down through time going from legend to legend and then all the players gather around it and go i want it i want it i want it i want you're a wizard why do you want it i still want it because it's a rare thing to have magical items and you might not have a group that does well with deciding who gets it oh yeah absolutely um Loot distribution is is a big thing. If people listen to Critical Hit, you will find <laughs> that I am like very hands-on about giving out loot. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's an NPC talking to a, a specific character, and they're like, oh, by the way, I made you this magic crossbow. <laughs> like, yeah. So that they don't just stumble into a room with a magic crossbow, and they're like, well, crossbow is in class for me. It's like, oh, yep. me too. I use a crossbow sometimes. I will yeah, it, use a crossbow It doesn't sometimes. turn into yeah. World of Warcraft. Crossbow, I definitely use it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it doesn't turn into World of Warcraft where it's like nobody cares about the other person that could use the item more. I'm just going to take it and sell it because yes. I can do that. So we hope that you've enjoyed this conversation about magic and the price of magic, the rarity of magic, and everything that is encompassed in that. We want to thank Rodrigo so much for coming on this show. Yes, thank uh, you so much. And Rodrigo, if if people want to learn more about Critical Hits or get in contact with you, where can they do that type of thing? Critical Hit is hosted at Majorspoilers.com. And there's a lot of like comic book and movie stuff in there as well. Uh, just look through the podcast listing. You can just find it on iTunes. If you want to get in contact with me, you can contact me at Fearsome Critter on Twitter or uh, magicturtle.tumblr.com. I answer Tumblr asks all the time. <laughs> Uh, those are probably the best ways uh, for people to reach me. And uh, yeah, buy my book on Amazon, The yes. Tallest Rabbit. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so yeah, much, Rodrigo. So we much really appreciate on. you coming on. And uh, we hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Sure. 
So that's all we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. We hope that you have enjoyed this discussion about magic, and we hope that you have really enjoyed Rodrigo as a guest on our show Definitely go and check out his podcast, Critical Hit, from Major Spoilers. Definitely tweet at him and let him know how much you loved his appearance on our show. Chris, if they would like to get in touch with us and email us and ask us any questions about magic in a world or D&D in general or even just personal questions about our own life, not that we will always give them an answer, but (laughs) where can they reach us at? Uh, You can reach us at DungeonMasterBlock at gmail.com. Send us any email you want. We may or may not answer it. Most likely we'll answer it. Uh, (laughs) We'll answer it, just maybe not with the answer that you want. (laughs) Uh, You can also go on iTunes and send us a five-star review on there. It helps people know that we're actually a podcast worth listening to and put out good things. So we would greatly appreciate that. And you can find us on all of the, the major podcasting apps that are out there, whether you're on Apple or on Android. You can also follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. You can like our Facebook page. Both of those places will have updates about the show and great D&D stuff as well as memes all around. We have a Patreon member shout out of the week. And this week's Patreon member shout out goes to... Ron Sargent. Sargent. So thank you very much, Ron. We greatly appreciate your support over on our Patreon page. Ron is a dreaded silver dragon, so he will be hopefully lurking, if he is not already lurking on the forums, in our Patreon dragon only section and giving us input on the future of our show. So thank you so much, Ron. We appreciate it. And that's all we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing all the characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Have a good night, everyone. And keep on Dungeon Mastering. Bye.